0: Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of The Phantom Shark by John Blaine. Volume 8, Chapter 17, Three Twisted Trails. Kenwood's long legs took him swiftly across the Place de Cocotiers and into a side street. Rick followed at a discreet distance. With Van der Claffens, Rick thought the reaction had been surprise why? The Dutchman had a right to be surprised, of course, but why should his surprise have led him to lie? Kenwood had concealed his reaction better. Only the fact that his story didn't jibe with the Dutchman's gave grounds for suspicion. What did the two know about Gerald? Rick crossed the street to take advantage of the cover offered by a line of trucks discharging produce, but his caution wasn't really necessary. Kenwood was hiking at a pace that made Rick hurry to keep up, and the Australian wasn't taking time out to look behind him. They passed from the business district into a residential part of town where old houses with balconies overhanging the street clustered together. Kenwood strode past the row of houses and then turned into a narrow street. Rick sprinted to catch up and looked around the corner in time to see the Australian go into a door. The house into which the Australian had gone was set slightly apart from his neighbors. Rick cast about and saw that it was separated from the neighboring house by an alley about three feet wide, overgrown with weeds. Rick looked down the narrow alley and saw that there were windows in both houses, but that they were well above the ground. If he crouched low, he wouldn't be seen. He took a quick look around and saw no one on the street or in the windows of any of the surrounding houses. He scooted into the alley. The weeds were almost to his waist. He kept low and picked his way cautiously. The last window was open. Rick took shelter under a stoop at the rear of the house and waited. He thought he could hear voices. But were they coming from the rear of the house or from the window he had just passed? He decided to try the window. He crept from his shelter. Kenwood was in the room. Rick kept his head below window level. He didn't dare look in, but he heard the Australian's voice, raised in an irritable question. The voice that answered spoke almost unintelligible English. "'To one van, he asks. Not no. Soon he goes.' "'Where did he go?' Kenwood demanded. "'Not no. To car.' "'Think.' When did you last see Nando? Nando come yesterday. Soon go. Where did he go? Not north, one. Did he go to Laguerre? Not not, north, right, blast it! I'll have to find out some other way. Call Galima. Tell him to bring out my car. Yes, one. A door slammed inside the house. Rick moved away, sure that he had heard the last of the conversation. Kenwood was angry at the ignorance of his houseboy, but Rick had gained a little information. Vander Claffens had come, and he had gone in a car. What had Chada done then? Kenwood was also about to go somewhere in a car. Rick moved swiftly from the little alley and took up a post on a corner diagonally across from Kenwood's house. He was in time to see a Tonkinese boy hurry out of the front door and down the street. That would be Kenwood's houseboy, hurrying to find Galima, whoever that might be. Rick pondered what he had heard. Kenwood had been anxious to find out about someone called Nando. He had never heard the name before. He wondered if Nando might be the Phantom Shark. One thing was clear, though. Vander Claffens and Kenwood knew a great deal more about the Phantom Shark than either of them had let on. What was the next step? If Kenwood left by car... Rick would be stranded. He thought about Barbie and Scotty waiting at La Bagnarde with Henri. If he could contact them, it might be possible to follow the Australian. He had to chance in getting to a telephone. He left his hiding place and ran back the way he had come, trying to recall where he had seen a store that might have a telephone. He had almost reached the corner of the street when a small car of French make rolled by. The Tonkinese houseboy was in the front seat next to the driver, a kanaka. Rick stepped into a doorway and waited. The car pulled up in front of Kenwood's house. The Tonkinese houseboy got out, and at the same time, Kenwood came from the house and jumped into the car. Rick watched unhappily. It was too late now. He had lost Kenwood. The car flashed away from the curb and turned rapidly around in the narrow street and then it roared toward Rick. He flattened himself in the doorway. The car sped by, but Kenwood, looking straight ahead, didn't see Rick. He waited until the car rounded the next corner and then ran for the business district, in the opposite direction from that which Kenwood had taken. He reached the corner of the residential street and hesitated. There were a number of stores. He turned right and started downhill to a group that looked more prosperous and were more likely to have phones. Had Rick crossed the street, he would have been within sight of the cathedral steeple, and Barbie would have seen him. Had he continued straight ahead, he would have walked right into Scotty. But by turning right, he kept buildings between him and the others. In an office supply store, he found a telephone. The proprietor cheerfully gave his permission to use it. Rick thumbed through the thin phone book and found the number for La Bagnarde. The operator got the connection, and a voice with an accent answered. I want the American girl or the American boy, Rick said. Are they there? They're gone. Where did they go? Don't know. See them going car. How long ago? Not so long. Rick thanked him and hung up, and then stared thoughtfully through the store window. Barbie and Scotty had gone in a car, probably on Rees, But where had they gone? And why? He shook his head. He couldn't chase all over the city looking for them now. Kenwood was on his way somewhere, probably following the same route Vanderclaffins had taken. And where was Chada anyway? Well, there was one clue to follow. Kenwood had mentioned a name that sounded like Laguerre. Who or where was Laguerre? Do you have a map? He asked the proprietor. Certainly, monsieur of Noumea? I'm looking for something called Le Rick explained. Have you ever heard the name? But oui. It is a small village not far from here. You wish to locate it on a map? Yes, if you please. The man selected a map from a counter case and unfolded it. It was a large-scale map of New Caledonia with a smaller insert showing the area around Noumea Harbor. He pointed to a point on the coast above Noumea. Port Le There is the village there, a small place of no consequence. Rick looked at the map scale and then estimated the distance. It was seven or eight miles from Numea, allowing for the irregular coastline. How can I get there? he asked. By car. But it is a rough trip. Also, if you are lucky, you may find a railroad coach. Railroad? Rick looked surprised. Of a sort, not a good railroad. "'Mostly it is used to transport workmen to and from the mines, "'but cars go all the time. "'If you're lucky, you may find one.' "'Rick thanked the man, paid for the map, and tucked it into his pocket. "'He hadn't suspected the presence of a railroad on New Caledonia, "'but it was clearly marked on the map, "'and the terminal wasn't very far away. "'He hurried across town. "'Laguerre, from its location on the map, "'would be a good hideout for the Phantom Shark, It was close to Numea, but isolated. Furthermore, the shark could have reached Ansvata Beach by water from Laguerre. The railroad station was not for commercial use, it seemed. At least he could find no one to sell him a ticket. He went to the rear of the station and found a group of men working on a tiny diesel-operated locomotive. The tracks on which it sat seemed scarcely more than a yard wide. It was a railroad in miniature with tiny freight cars, the only island railroad in the South Pacific. Rick walked over to a man who stood on the outskirts of the repair gang. How can I find out about getting a ride to Laguerre? he asked. Hen? Laguerre, Rick said. Evidently, the man didn't understand English. The man called to one of the group and spoke rapidly in French. Another Frenchman walked toward Rick. You want to go to Laguerre? Yes. Is there a train? We go in ten minutes. You can come. How much will it be? Much? Nothing. East one workman? You just get on. Thanks very much, said Rick, delighted with his luck. Charlie was getting anxious. Over fifteen minutes had passed since Vander Claffens sped from sight in his car, and not another bit of transportation had passed. He walked to the police box by the side of the road and struck up a conversation with the Kanaka policeman. There are not many cars. When does the bus come? Sometimes many cars, sometimes not. Bus comes twice a day, in the morning, also at night. Then there was no hope of getting a bus. Is it possible for you to help me get a ride? It is most important I get a ride. The policeman shrugged. Cow comes, you get rid. I stop cow ask, Chada nodded his thanks. He had removed his necktie and put it in his pocket. He had rumpled his hair in a good imitation of the local hairdo. He could easily pass for a light-colored native boy. Vander hadn't noticed him, even when he looked back once. But by getting a car, the Dutchman had effectively left him behind. Chada had managed to reach the outskirts of town by jumping on the back of a passing truck. Then the truck had turned up a side street, and he'd been forced to jump off, in time to see the rear of the Dutchman's car vanish down a road. Now, yeah, is coming, a Kanaka policeman said. He stepped into the road and held up his hand. Chada saw that it was a small car of French make. A Kanaka drove while a white man sat in the back. In a moment, everything was arranged. The man in the back seat looked disgruntled and impatient, but he raised no objections. Chada thanked the officer and climbed into the front seat. All right, Galina," the man in the back said. Get going. He had a British or Australian accent. Chada wondered. The man wore a seaman's white cap, too. Even though he was sitting down, it could be seen he was taller than average. The Hindu boy swiveled around and faced the man. Your pardon, monsieur, said Chada, trying to imitate the local dialect. You need number one cabin boy? Cabin boy for what? For a pretty big schooner with funny name. The man smiled. Kookaburra, I said I'm an Australian bird. No, I don't need a cabin boy. Too no bad, Chada said. Maybe next time. He turned and faced front again, his heart hammering. By the sheerest luck, he had gotten the lift from Kenwood. VANDER CLAFFEN'S AUSTRALIAN FRIEND Barbie was tired of waiting, and besides, the man who had let her go up into the steeple would be getting suspicious. She had seen nothing of Rick, nothing of Chada, nor of Vanderclaffens, nor even of Kenwood. Of course, one or all of them might have been in a car that had gone through the area, but she couldn't be expected to see them through a steel top. She made her way down, thanked the caretaker, and went out into the street. A block away she found Scotty. "'We can't just wait around,' she said impatiently. "'Think of something, Scotty.' "'There's only one thing we can do. Canvass the area and ask everybody we see. That's a big job.' "'I don't care,' said Barbie firmly. "'We have to find them. You take one side of the street and I'll take the other.' "'All right, let's get started then,' he agreed. "'They separated and began a slow canvass in the neighborhood. "'Every person who spoke anything resembling English "'they asked about an American boy who had passed by a while ago. "'All the answers were negative. "'Then they moved to a busy business street, "'and Barbie found their first clue. "'A Kanaka peddler had seen what he believed was an American. "'At least he'd been young, and he had walked very rapidly.' which no New Caledonian in his right mind would do in the heat of the day. He had come by after a tall man who had also walked rapidly. Then sometime later, the young man had come back again. Barbie hurried to Scotty. We're on the right track. Rick came this way, following Kenwood. Then he came back down the street again. Good. Let's keep going then, Scotty exclaimed. They hadn't asked about Chad realizing that he would not be noticed particularly, in a city where brown skin predominated. Marby continued on her way, asking each store proprietor, each truck driver, and each street vendor. Then, as they neared the place where the street joined a main thoroughfare, Scotty came out of a store and hailed her. Come on, he called. I know where Rick went. Chapter 18 Nondo. The flat car swayed and groaned and rattled at an incredible speed over flat countryside, while Rick tried to hold on with one hand and scan his map with the other. He had a clear picture now of the location of Laguerre in relation to Noumea. One large peninsula and two smaller ones separated Laguerre from Numea Bay. What was most interesting, the railroad went in a straight line as possible across country, while the road took a great curve away from the sea to a town called Dumbea. Then it ran straight toward the sea again until it reached the town of Paita, near which Gerald had been captured by the phantom shark. The railroad was the shortest leg of a triangle, with the other legs formed by the curve of the road. At the speed they were making, and with a shorter distance to cover, Rick thought he might very likely reached Laguerre ahead of Kenwood. The Australian would have to proceed at a moderate speed because the road was not very good. The trainman came back, balancing himself like a sailor in heavy weather. Laguerre, two or three minutes, he said. Rick wondered if it would be wise to go right into town. Can I get off this side of Laguerre, he asked. If you want off, you better go now. Laguerre is soon. The trainman turned and yelled something in French. The engineer stuck his head out of the cab and waved. The train slowed and swayed perilously. Rick folded the map and got to his feet, holding onto the brake wheel for support. Ahead, near the sea, he saw a group of huts, evidently made of grass. To his left, the sea was cut off by heavy jungle. Between him and the jungle was a wide field of kogan grass. The train slowed, the rasp of steel brakes on steel wheels sending a quiver down Rick's spine. Then the trainman gestured. It was time to jump. They evidently weren't going to stop completely. Rick yelled his thanks and picked a spot and jumped. He landed running, fighting to keep his balance. Then he slowed to a stop and waved as the train forged ahead. He started through the field of Kogan to the edge of the jungle, thinking that the woods would hide him. Then, halfway across the field, he came to a road. wasn't much of a road. Two-wheeled tracks through the tall grass. He hesitated as he noticed a tiny patch of black against the yellow-green grass. He touched it and sniffed. Oil. And it was so fresh it hadn't had time to absorb into the thirsty earth. A car had passed, very recently. That decided him. The road must branch off the one that led into town. He followed it and saw that it turned into the jungle. The woods were dense, overgrown with creepers. The road was little more than a trail, just wide enough for a car to pass, if the driver didn't mind rubbing the sides against the foliage. He moved rapidly, but with caution. He didn't know when he might enter a clearing. It was a perfect hideout for someone like the Phantom Shark, he thought close to Numea, but well hidden and handy to the sea. It was close to Paita, too, according to the map. His pulse began to pound. There was every possibility that Gerald, his thought, broke off as he says to presence behind him. He whirled, but it was too late. Something thudded home behind his ear. The strength flowed out of his legs, and sense fled from him. Just below Paita, the car in which Chada rode slowed to a stop. The Hindu boy saw that a narrow dirt road led far away from the macadam. Far as we go, Kenwood announced. Out with you, my lad. Chada had no choice but to obey. Thank you, he said. You see me again, maybe, when I come for job as cabin boy. The Australian grinned. I don't figure on hiring any cabin boys. Yahagalima. Chada stood aside as the car swung into the narrow road. He waited until it was out of sight. And then he followed at a dog trot. The dirt road curved through brushland that soon gave way to a rolling field of high grass. Far ahead, Chada saw the roofs of a town. He counted eight houses, all with thatched roofs. But before he reached them, A few yards on the other side of an incredibly narrow railroad track, the road branched. A little-used road cut through the swale and across the grassy field. Chad bent and studied the ground. There was only one set of fresh tire tracks in the dust of the road surface. They turned off onto the new road. He turned off, too, and continued at his best and most enduring pace, a fast walk that was not quite a run. Henri drove like a madman, but Scotty didn't object. He was glad that he had insisted that Barbie return to La Yard. There was no telling what danger he might run into at Laguerre. Also, he felt that Dr. Warren should be informed of the recent developments. They sped past tiny villages of Kanaka folk, and the people stopped to gape at the speed of their passing. Chickens squawked their way to safety and now and then a pig caused Henri to swerve. It was lovely country, dotted with banana trees, palms, and spreading mango trees, but they were going too fast to enjoy it. Bata come, Henri called back. They went through the village without slowing, an ox cart pulled to the side as Henri's horn wailed, but so slowly they missed it by the width of a coat of paint. A few minutes later they reached the village of Laguerre. Stop, Scotty ordered. There were less than a dozen huts, all made of split bamboo material called suwali. All were occupied by kanakas, big friendly folk who clustered around the car. Scotty said, Henri, ask if they've seen another car. Henri spoke in the queer pidgin French of the island. The villagers shook their heads and answered volubly. What'd they say? Say no car come two, three days. Well, ask if there are any other houses around, Scotty said. Henri put the question to them. It was answered with a great deal of pointing. They say house there, Henri gestured to the left. In the jungle? They say we road, back small way, I find. Scotty considered. If there were a house in the jungle that ran along the coast, it wouldn't do to tip their hand by driving right up to it. Henri, wait right here in the village for me. Henri nodded. Scotty got out and walked down the road until he came to a turnoff leading into the jungle. For perhaps 20 minutes, he picked his way through the tangled growth. Then he saw something that made him stop short. The jungle skirted the bay and stopped at the edge of a low bluff that dropped vertically to the beach. Scotty had followed the rim of the bluff because it was easier going. Now, a few yards ahead, he saw a flight of stairs leading down toward the water. He inched forward and saw that they led to what was evidently a boathouse, built out over the bay and concealed by two fingers of jungle scrub that thrust out on either side. A mouse with thorns on its feet was running around inside Rick's skull, trying hard to get out. He wished it would succeed. He tried to sit up, but his head was too heavy. Then he realized someone was helping him. He sat up with a Herculean effort and looked dizzily into a familiar brown face. Rick, you are not dead. Not yet, Rick said. He tried to lift a hand to rub his sore head, but his hand wouldn't move. You are tied, Chana explained. Just wait a minute. He knelt and fumbled at Rick's wrists. In a moment, he held up a belt. With this? Rick put one hand to his head and felt a lump behind his ear. He winced at the touch. Somebody really got me good. I didn't even see who it was. We'll find out now. Can you walk all right? I can walk. Rick said, and proved it by standing up and taking a few hesitant steps. I don't know how well. Chalice's forehead creased. Maybe better you stay here. I go up to see what is up. House close by, two cars. Van der and Kenwood are both here. I'll go with you, Rick said. He wished the top of his head would blow off and just be done with it. Chada motioned for quiet and stepped out into the road. Rick followed one hand, nursing the lump behind his ear for perhaps two hundred feet. They moved through jungle that would have been almost impassable except for that narrow road. Then, as the road curved around a giant banyan tree, they saw the house. It was of wooden construction with a painted tin roof, in a clearing between them and the house were two cars. One Rick recognized as Kenwood's. Where was Galima, Kenwood's driver? The boys faded into the woods and examined the place from a safer distance. Galima wasn't in sight, nor was anybody else. Let's try closer, Rick said softly. They circled to the left, still keeping in the woods. There was no one to be seen, but a side door was opened and from within came the sound of angry voices. The boys looked at each other. They had to get in on this. We can make it, Rick said. Looks like everybody's inside. It'll be a cinch. Just keep low and keep the cars between us and the house. Then go around the cars, keeping down, and we'll be under the window. Easy, Chana said. Are you all right? I'm fine. Let's get going. Rick led the way. He moved into the cars between him and the house and then crouched low and went fast, coming to a stop behind the French car. Chada moved in and stopped next to him. So far, so good, Rick muttered. He dropped to hands and knees to be sure he was below the sight of anybody facing the window and then went scuttling across the open space, not stopping until he was against the wall of the house. Chada was right beside him. Rick moved until he was directly under a window. There was no glass in any of the windows, and the sills were only a few feet above the ground. He raised himself up until he could hear the voices clearly. I could cut you down and the police would never hold me for it, the voice grated. Come on now, which of you is the phantom? I want to know which one. Rick froze. The voice was unmistakably American and it could only be Gerald. This was a new turn. The American was threatening. Therefore he wasn't a captive. What was going on, anyway? If only they could see inside. Vanderclaffen's voice answered calm and patient. I tell you that neither of us held you up. We can prove it. I was asleep in my hotel, as the houseboy can bear witness. "'And Kenwood was not even in your "'If anyone held you up, it was Nondo. "'They lie!' said an unfamiliar voice. "'Rick chafed with impatience. "'If only they could get a look inside. "'He crawled along the wall, "'hoping for a crack or something that would allow him to see. "'He rounded the corner and saw a door stoop "'with two stairs leading to the door. "'If only he dared look around the corner.' He inched forward and felt Chada close behind him. From inside, Kenwood drawled. bang's right. What reason would we have for holding you up? Gerald laughed harshly. Don't you call $10,000 reason enough? The door was open. Rick put his hand on the stoop and lifted himself with infinite caution. He leaned forward, ready to draw back instantly, and peered through the open door and looked right into Gerald's eyes. The big man had a gun in his hand. He steadied it on Rick's head. Keep coming, Gerald said flatly. He moved with surprising speed for one so big. Back against the wall, all of you. Brant, keep coming. Rick had no choice. Well, you couldn't have untied yourself, Gerald said. Tell your pal to come in, too. I'll shoot if you make me. There was nothing else to do. Rick and Chata rose and walked into the room. Lined up against the wall, hands high, were Vander Kenwood, and the half-caste clerk who had been at the pier, with whom Rick had fought at Ansvada. He was Nando. He had to be. No one else was in the room. Gerald's face was covered with a thick stubble of beard, and his eyes were cold under swollen lids. Line up with them, he gestured with his gun. Rick and Chata did so. We came because we heard you were kidnapped, Rick said. We couldn't leave a fellow American in a jam. Rick stared at him keenly. I believe you, kid, he said finally. I didn't know what you were doing, so I couldn't take a chance. That's why I slugged you. You? It was Rick's turn to stare. Then you weren't kidnapped? No. I was knocked out by the Phantom Shark, and my strongbox was taken. I came to before the driver did. Started out for town, hoping to find out where the Phantom Shark had gone. His mouth thinned. No one robs Walt Gerald and gets away with it. He gestured toward Nando. Spotted him walking through the streets of Paida at dawn. And I followed him. He led me here. I've been in the jungle ever since, waiting for his boss to show. I knew he wasn't the Phantom because of that man in the beach. I figure he belonged to the Phantom. I wanted that dirty crook bad enough to lie in the jungle and live on wild mangoes and palm cabbage until he showed up. Now we've got two of them. And one of them has to be the Phantom Shark. The change in events had caught Rick by surprise. He looked at Vander Claffins and Kenwood, and a sudden idea struck him. Why did the Phantom Shark have to be one man? Why not two? It would make a wonderful cover-up. If they took turns being the Phantom Shark, no one would ever suspect. Hadn't he decided that it couldn't be either of them? But... That was without taking into consideration that they might be working together, there was only one problem with that he couldn't imagine either of the two being thieves or murderers. It didn't fit. They were tough men. they had to be to exist in the island trade, but he thought they were basically decent. It wasn't either of them. Rick said flatly, Nando is your boy. He figured on getting away with your money and pearls and casting the blame on the phantom shark. Why not? Nobody's ever seen the shark. Gerald grinned mirthlessly. The shark kills to get pearls. Why shouldn't he take them away from his customers? Because it's bad business, Rick explained. The only market he has is rich men who aren't too particular whether or not they buy stolen goods, or maybe small pearl buyers he can force into buying. If word ever got out that he robs his customers... Rich people would be afraid to deal with them. Gerald frowned. Keep talking, kid. You're making sense. Another thing, Chada put in. When these men heard you were missing, they got excited, and they rushed out here. I'm sure they knew nothing about this before we told them. Chada's right. I thought it was crazy when I first heard you were missing, Rick went on. It didn't sound like the Phantom Shark. It never occurred to me that you might have hidden yourself but now it makes sense. Nando was the one who held you up. He was double-crossing the phantom shark. He tried it once before at Ansvada. He was figuring on slugging you and taking away what pearls you had just bought. I'll bet on it. Vanderklaffen started. He turned to the half-cast. Were you at Ansvata? You dirty scum! He lifted his arm as though to strike Nando, but the man moved like a streak. His shoulder caught the Dutchman in the armpit and sent Vanderclaffins hurtling directly into Gerald. The big man staggered, and in that moment, Nando was on him, wrenching the gun from his hand. Rick, Kenwood, and Chadda started forward, but Nando was quicker. With one bound, he went headlong through the window, rolled like an acrobat, and was on his feet and running. Scotty moved slowly through the jungle careful not to let a sound betray his presence. Suddenly he froze. A few yards ahead, leaning against a tree and smoking a cigarette, was a kanaka. Scotty had never seen the man before. He didn't know it was Galima, Kenwood's driver. The boy sank back into the brush and considered his next move. He could go around the kanaka, or he could sneak up and put him temporarily out of the picture with a punch. But he never had the chance to decide. From somewhere ahead, Rick let out a yell. He's getting away! The Kanaka whirled, dropped his cigarette, and started off at a run. Scotty moved cautiously behind him, and in a moment he saw a man sprinting down the path. The Kanaka said something in pidgin French, and the newcomer answered, slowing to a walk. Only then did Scotty see the pistol in his hand. The newcomer walked up to the Kanaka, and Scotty saw his face the half-caste clerk. He came close to the Kanaka, smiled, and then with the speed of a striking rattler, he brought the barrel of the pistol sharply against the Kanaka's temple. The man crumpled without a sound. Someone shouted, He went toward the bolt house." Scotty didn't know the score, but he knew that somehow the clerk was running away from Rick. He waited until the man was almost abreast of him, and then launched himself into a vicious tackle. His shoulder smashed into the man's thighs, and he went down with a crash. But as he dropped, he swung the gun in his hand. The barrel raked against Scotty's head, sending a wave of agony through him. For an instant, he relaxed his grip. Then the gun descended again across the muscles of his right arm, completely paralyzing it. The half caste jerked away and ran. Scotty watched helplessly as Nando paused at the edge of the clearing and dug frantically into the earth. There were now several voices besides Rick's, shouting. He fought against losing consciousness. Now the half-caste clerk was lifting a metal box out of its shallow hiding place. Tucking it under one arm and whirling to fire a shot in the direction of the dearest pursuer, he ran with desperate strides in the direction of the boathouse. And now he was conscious that Rick and Chada were bending over him and lifting him to his feet. Vander Claffens bent over the huddled form of the driver. Kenwood and Gerald started to go past. Which way did Nando go? bellowed Gerald. The boathouse, replied Scotty weakly. He's gone to get the shark, Kenwood exclaimed. He ran to the edge of the forest and looked down into the water. Rick followed, not knowing what the Aussie had meant. Gerald and the others crowded around. An instant later, the doors of the boathouse swung open, and a huge silver thing, almost twenty feet long, flashed out, and Rick gasped. It was a shark, a shark of metal. It sped along the surface of the water, and then dived smoothly with a swirl of foam, and disappeared.